This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm Shauna Larson. Today's special episode is an excerpt from the Mayo Clinic Pediatric Days Conference held in Chicago, Illinois. This annual conference provides an interdisciplinary update in the latest strategies for providing timely and effective evidence-based diagnosis and management plans for multiple aspects of pediatric and young adult health. Today's selected presentation, What I Won't Let My Kids Do, is presented by Dr. Mark Mannenbach, Mayo Clinic pediatrician and pediatric emergency medicine physician. Let's listen in. I amended this to say what my grandkids as well. I now have three, number four on the way. Um, so bear with me. Um, so first, thanks to John and Walt uh, and Sue for putting on a great conference. I have grown to appreciate what they do so much more. We put on an ER conference up in the Twin Cities in September, and I wore the badge that said course director. That's a lot of work, and uh, it's hurting cats. So thanks for hurting us cats, guys. We appreciate it very, very much. Um, the other thing I wanted to just kind of talk about today is uh, they suggested this topic for me, and um, thank you. Um, so it may be some, uh, a little bit of controversy, but hopefully not too much. And what I did is I chose different areas in which it's not just kind of your worst case that you've ever seen. We all have taken care of kids where like it's the one-off, terrible, terrible, catastrophic outcome. And I wanted to stay a, a little bit away from the emotion of this as much as I could and get a little bit more objective reasons why I don't want my kids or grandkids to do some of these things. So uh, hopefully it'll be a little bit more balanced. I've been told never be the first speaker at a conference, never be the last, and don't talk about anything controversial. So I am not the last speaker. Thank you, John and Walt. Thank you so much. Yeah, we'll get going here. So hopefully at the end of this presentation, you'll be able to identify three activities. You can decide if they're truly sports or not. That's up for kind of debate as well. But three activities with inherent risks and limited protection. And that's really what I want to focus my time on is where can we potentially do some uh, change? Where can we make uh, effective change without necessarily shutting down the sport, the activity? I want to talk about specific injuries for each of those activities uh, that we see, as I mentioned, not just the gut reaction, one-off anecdotal experience, but I want to talk about some data behind that. And then I want to talk about potential strategies to mitigate those injuries. Now, you folks that are pediatricians and pediatric care providers, you're advocates for kids. I can do some of this work in the emergency department. Next time, wear a helmet, kid. But you've got to do the bread and butter work in your well-child visits. When you see those sports physical opportunities, uh, I want to give you some tools and ideas about what, what your patients might be facing when they get involved in these activities. I have no financial relationships to disclose, no off-label drug or equipment uses. I am a mandated reporter, however. So last night at dinner, we were talking about if you come to me and start sharing me your experiences about your own kids and what you've done or not done, mm, I think it crosses state lines. I have to report that. So be careful of the stories that you share with me. In balance of all this, you've seen these headlines. You see these kids in your office. I see them in the ER. We I'm not saying shut down these activities. Please, by all means, I don't want kids to still be couch potatoes. They need to do some things that gets them active, that gets them off the couch, that gets them out there and doing some things. 
Um, I'm not saying that that is, it, it is the goal here, but there are some activities that we have to think about. Are they lifelong activities as well? Can they do this over the long run? Um, I stopped playing basketball when I was 35 for good reasons, um, mostly talent related, not injury, but um, those are the kinds of things we need to talk about. And some of these activities have lifelong implications for these kids that I think we need to make sure they and their parents know about. There's also the kind of disclaimer about what I call stupid kid tricks. You've heard of stupid pet tricks, right? But some kids just do stupid things. Um, it usually involves their big brother, right? Okay, I'm still in counseling about that. So um, they do some silly things, and we know that's going to happen. And again, I'm trying to stay away from the anecdote. Some things happen we just can't prevent at all, but there are some things I think we can work towards prevention of. So let's get started. So the, there are three areas I want to talk about, the first one being trampolines. Now this one you might think, oh, what's the big deal, trampoline injuries? Uh, for those that are involved with pediatric orthopedic care, this is kind of what you do for a living in the summer, I think. Uh, between playground, lucky bars, and trampolines, you probably know what you're doing uh, from about Memorial Day to Labor Day. You kind of know what you're going to be taking care of. Um, and this picture kind of summarizes things pretty well as we talk through the injury events and, and prevention strategies. I think this really kind of highlights some things right here. Uh, two kids on the trampoline landing on his forearm and or elbow uh, I think gives you a pretty good picture of, of what kind of problems we run into with trampoline injuries. So the National uh, Electronic Injury Surveillance System uh, database over a 10-year period looked at trampoline injuries. There were a million kids that were injured on trampolines. Of these, about a third were fracture-related, and I want to talk specifically about those today um, as kind of a highlighted type of injury. Their average age was about 10 years. Most of the kids, most of the patients were under 16 years of age. Half male, half female, roughly. And these are at home. So these are not competitive gymnasts. These are not the kids that are at the gymnastics school using trampolines. These are kids in their backyard. But notice 10% were admitted, and I don't know that that's an insignificant amount of kids. The reason they often get admitted is that elbow injury, and you probably all know or have seen this netter slide about neurovascular compromise or why that can happen to a kiddo with a supracondylar fracture. Those are the reasons that they get admitted and most often are operative kind of repair. But think about this, just for the fracture care over that 10-year period, over $400 million spent on orthopedic injuries related to trampolines. That's a lot of money. And think of the rehab time, think of the uh, change in lifestyle for those kids during that time as well. Most often this is an upper extremity injury, occasionally lower extremity, but notice axial skeleton. The thing you're gonna break your neck on the trampoline just isn't very often the case. Again, I can, t I can vividly remember two kids in the emergency department with cervical spine injuries from trampolines it was kind of a stupid kid trick kind of thing that was involved. We'll talk about that as well. But these are upper extremity injuries. And this slide, just to remind you, if you show up at the scene, if it's in your backyard, please do a neurovascular check in these kids. You can make a big impact right away. Just reposition them to a position of comfort. You can probably help them out in terms of neurovascular problems. Uh, so make them comfortable, splint them, get them into a position that will, will make sure this uh, is less likely. This is a little boy we took care of with the trampoline, and you can see over here, he's got tenting of his skin in the supracondylar area, 
and I can't show you because even a video wouldn't do it, he really didn't have much of a pulse at all. Um, so our orthopedic docs were up in the operating room, we gave him some sedation and we did reduce this somewhat, um, but that's hard to reduce because that fracture fragment buttonholes through the fascia of the biceps muscles and it, it, was, it was quite a chore, I think, for them to even reduce this surgically later on. So think about neurovascular compromise if you're in the backyard with, after the trampoline injury. So just some improvement strategies we can look at. I think a little direct supervision wouldn't hurt. So the other injury other than cervical spine that I recall, the teenage boy who jumped from the roof of the garage to the trampoline and shorted it. He was trying to get to the roof of his friend's house next door. He shorted it and landed on the railing of the deck of his neighbor's house right here in the belly. And so he had a transected pancreas, right? And so that's the anecdotal, sorry, uh, just can't get it out of my head. So a little supervision might go a long way, all right? Safer surfaces. Now, I'm not talking about the antlers poking through, okay? The safer surfaces, many of these wear down. Uh, these trampolines are left outside all winter long. They break down, they have gaps in them, they have tears, rents in them. And looking at the surface might save you a little bit of effort and time, and the kid might not go through or land awkwardly and end up with that fracture. And then finally, invariably, when these kids get fractures, it's because there's more than one kiddo on the trampoline at a time. Uh, the netting really has been thought, you might think, well, that's a great prevention strategy. It actually has been thought to increase risky behavior amongst kids. They want to try to jump over the net. Can I get as high as the net and jump out of it? Yeah. So it may not be the best. The other strategy that might help is the in-ground version. Dig a hole, sink the trampoline down so that it's at the same level. That might help. Um, but the netting really does not. On to the next one. So number two of things I hope my grandchildren will never do. My son is a fly fishing guide out in Montana. I don't want to know um, what goes on out there many times. Um, but I'm going with him in October, later this month, so we'll see. So this is the other thing that we see quite often in our emergency department. Uh, Mayo Clinic Rochester is located in a fairly rural area. We have a lot of farm communities nearby. Um, ATVs are a way of life for a lot of families on the farm. It's the way they get around the farm. But we're seeing younger and younger kids on these vehicles. And again, pretty obvious here, no helmets. Younger and younger kids, more than one kid on an ATV. And I'm not sure they're really prepared to do that. Now, notice there's four wheels on these vehicles, which I think is important. How many remember three-wheel ATVs? Raise your hand. Yeah, most of you do. When was the last time you saw a three-wheel ATV? Jay Jaime told us at dinner last night, his dad finally sold his three-wheel ATV. And I'm like, who did he sell it to? Oh, my goodness, what was he thinking? So ATVs are still something that we take care of, uh, injuries in the emergency department quite often. Uh, again, their use has really skyrocketed. So it's not just my imagination. Uh, it's almost doubled in 10 years. And that's as, you know, 2010, there's probably even more now potentially. Uh, but it went from 5.6 million ATVs in use in 2001 to over uh, 10 million by 2010. The injury rate increased steadily from the 90s to the early 2000s, partly because of the three-wheel ATV. Encouraging, however, that the injured riders decreased as of 2010 in general injuries, but also deaths have actually decreased. So it's not all bad news about these injury events that I'm talking about today. So as of 2013, 426 deaths related to ATVs. 
Now, kids account for more injuries relative to their use of this. So kids are about maybe 15, 18% of the riders, but they account for even close to up to 60% of the injuries. So they bear the brunt or the burden of this. And of those 400-some uh, deaths in 2013, 62 of those were, um, were kids, uh, ATV-related. We recently had a 14-year-old uh, in our practice uh, that was killed as a result of an ATV. No helmet, and he rolled the vehicle on top of himself. So those things are still real. They still exist, but thankfully they are reduced. If you look at ATVs compared to other motor vehicle crashes, twice the hospitalization rate uh, for kids on the ATVs. And you also have to think about your own practice, your own area, because this is very regional. Uh, in Arizona, they actually reported an 83% increase in those injuries from 2004 to 2008. So it is an ebb and flow kind of thing. Um, I didn't have time to put it in, but there was an article in pediatrics recently about Massachusetts and ATV injuries. And after some legislative changes that they made, they actually saw the number of injuries to kids from ATVs drop significantly. So it's an ebb and flow kind of thing, and it may depend on the region where you practice. So admissions at one pediatric trauma center uh, from 2007 to 2011, 18% of these kids were under six years of age, little kids on ATVs. Other reviews report even up to between 6 and 13% of injuries amongst kids less than five years of age. Uh, the the uh, Com Consumer Product Safety Commission reports that most often the admissions uh, are males and most often they're white. The mean age, anywhere between 12, 13. Protective equipment, you'd think that'd be a no-brainer, but it's not. Only about 43% of injured riders used helmets in 2010. Remember, these are admitted patients, so there might be plenty of kids that we never see, so amongst admitted patients. And in, in other studies, confirmed helmet use as low as 0% in one series uh, to at most 44%. So more than half of kids are not wearing helmets when they're on the ATVs. The most common causes, they roll the vehicle over, they collide with another object, or they're ejected from the vehicle. Risk factors, these are more powerful machines than ever. Um, if you look at the size of some of these, it's amazing. Uh, they now accommodate for equipment on the back. They've got wonderful racks. They make accommodations to have at least one rider on uh, as well. Um, and these kids, as we've already mentioned, younger and younger all the time. Can they handle that vehicle? I'm not sure. But that's what we're seeing in our practice, too. And again, the safety equipment that goes along with this. There are no roll bars. There are nothing really. They're just open and I think easily um, injured uh, as a result. So what can we do here? So contrast the earlier pictures with this. This little guy, he's on an appropriate size vehicle. He can handle this vehicle at his age. Someone's supervising him. They took the picture, right? I mean, someone's there, thankfully. Um, but I think the other thing, you have to really talk about helmet use. And in our practice, I would say helmet use is the exception because these are the kids that hop on the ATV to run to the end of the farm uh, to run an errand for mom or dad, and they think they're immune. Nothing's going to happen, and that's when they run into problems. So I think we need to work on that part of things as well. So if you've got a child who is a farm kid in your practice, talk to them about how they get around the farm. Ask them, do you use that ATV? It's fun, isn't it? It's really, really a great time, isn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah. How fast can you get that thing up? Oh, I can get that thing going, okay. And you wear your helmet, right? Maybe not. So that's an opportunity, I think, for you to be proactive and get out there and, and help them out with those decisions.
Topics like these are discussed at the Mayo Clinic Pediatric Days Conference. This year's event will be held in October at Chicago's Weston Hotel on Michigan Avenue. We invite you to network with your colleagues and Mayo Clinic faculty by registering at ce.mayo.edu slash pediatric days 2018. So this is injury event number three. Um, we spend a lot of time in our practice taking care of kids on motocross injuries. Uh, this is actually one of our ER residents who graduated. Um, she is a competitive motocross rider. Um, and Alyssa is, is good at what she does, but we never saw eye to eye about this issue. I'll just let you know. We, we did not see eye to eye at all. Um, she has a little boy. Uh, I think he's a toddler now. I said, what's going to happen there? Oh, he's going to ride. He's going to ride. Okay. So again, the, the uh, National Electronic Injury Surveillance System, uh, over a three-year period, uh, almost 24,000 uh, of, kid, uh, of kids under age 19 had uh, uh, treatment for uh, injuries. Uh, there was a 33% increase in the number of injuries during that uh, time period as well. So from what I could tell from the literature, the number of injuries are actually increasing here as opposed to ATVUs. Um, because of our experience uh, in Minnesota, there are, I think, seven tracks for competitive motocross racing in the Minnesota area, southeast Minnesota, and they draw national competitions. Um, so we know very quickly when it's going to be a motocross weekend um, in the emergency department. It, it doesn't take us long to figure that out. As a result, we've kind of been able to publish quite a few number of articles about our experience with them. So again, this is not anecdotal. This is something you can hand to these kids if they're motocross racers and just give them some facts and details. So an eight-year study, 300 injury events in about 250 patients. The age here was between 14 and 16. So we looked specifically at kids under 18 years of age. Helmet use was confirmed in only 70% of these kids, though. So the competitive racers generally are very well helmeted. Those that are recreational users, probably, again, not so much. Uh, the youngest I've seen in our emergency department is age five uh, for a competitive motocross racer. There are, there are classes that go down, I think, as low as four, if I remember correctly. So my youngest patient is five. So this particular study looked at head injury or traumatic brain injury uh, and found that 20% of the kids who sought care in our emergency department during that time period uh, had a head injury or TBI. Uh, only 10 of them had head CT abnormalities. So most of them are not um, uh, bleeding or skull fracture or anything else like that. But spine fractures were found as well, with five of them undergoing surgical fixation for their injuries. So not a lot of injuries, not a lot of kids, you might say, um, but some of those injuries were certainly significant. Second study, kind of the same approach, same group um, in southeastern Minnesota. It was a retrospective cohort model comparing the advanced degenerative findings in young motocross racers with age-matched controls. So in the process of evaluating these kids after their injuries, we began to notice on some of their images some long-term chronic changes, not necessarily acute injuries, but chronic changes. And what I heard at some of the discussion about this is that these kids' spines look like that of a 40-year-old. And it struck me that I don't know that these kids or their parents are aware 
of the wear and tear that their spines are taking um, as a result of their activity. So to give you an idea, this, the control group was basically kids of the same age that had either plain radiographs or CT imaging done uh, for whatever reason. It could be a motor vehicle crash. It could be a kid with a, a brain tumor. It could be anything. So just over the same period of time, they compared the, the findings there. And they broke it down by whether it was cervical spine, thoracic spine, or lumbar spine. And so they, they made comparisons. And this is from the paper itself. Um, and they kind of looked at the different areas. And so here's an example of changes. Notice the, the normal lordotic curve of the cervical spine is lost. Uh, that's thought to be ligamentous, not positional. Um, they also have some chronic changes in the cervical vertebrae. So these would count as probably three degenerative changes for the purposes of the study. The other area they looked at was the thoracic area. Notice they already have some kyphotic changes going on here and also the degenerative changes of the vertebrae in the thoracic area. And then not only those, but also in the lumbar area. So this is an actual lumbar fracture in a patient as well as a result of motocross. So this is what most people think about, but a little bit surprising to think about the chronic degenerative changes that are going on here as well. And if you compare that control group to those that are in motocross, those um, in cervical and thoracic spine areas, there were significantly different degenerative changes for the motocross racers than the controls. Not so much the lumbar area, but cervical and thoracic changes over time. So these are lifelong, long-term degenerative changes that they're facing already at ages 14, 15, and 16. <clears throat> and finally, this one. Um, Dave Soma is going to follow me. I'm, I'm going to maybe lead right into Dave's work here a little bit. How many of you see uh, kids with concussion? How many of you have seen kids with concussion, the numbers kind of just soar over the past five or 10 years? Yeah. I can't believe the number of kids I see in the emergency department for evaluation after concussion. Now, you could argue if they need to be there or not, I'm probably not going to do anything for them. I'm going to send them to Dave, and he's going to figure them out. Right, Dave? There you go. But it's, it's true, it's real, and people are very nervous about concussion. And they're worried about can their kid go back to play. Some afraid to let them go back to play. Others, they want to get them back to play like that night yet. Can they go back for the second half? Uh, no, I don't think so, I don't think so. So the, this approach uh, to concussion care really is not part of the motocross lifestyle, if you will. So this was, again, Amy McIntosh, one of our Peds orthodocs at the time, uh, went to the racetrack and actually interviewed these kids and got them to reply to questionnaires. She had a pretty good response rate. Almost 70% of them responded. And uh, almost half reported at least one concussion symptom. If they had uh, proper helmet fitting, uh, usually by a, a vendor, if they had proper helmet fitting, there was a 41% reduction in their concussion, reported concussion symptoms. If they had sponsor support, and that's the other issue here that's different than other sports or recreational activities, almost half of these kids had a sponsor. They were there to give them the equipment, the motorcycle, the trailer. They sponsored them to race. If they had that, their relative risk was one and a half times greater for concussion symptoms than if they did not. So there is some incentive here that's different than other sports that we can't ignore if you're in motocross racing. So what about motocross? Well, I think Amy kind of just touched on it. Many of these kids have symptoms and they never seek medical care. You might be able to ask them their questions in your practice and say, are you in motocross? 
How are you doing with your concussions? Not are you having them, they are. So you need to ask them. And there are no return to competition guidelines for motocross racers. There are very strict guidelines in Minnesota for return to football, lacrosse, hockey. You've got to be cleared before you can go back. It's law in Minnesota. These kids, they may be knocked out cold and back on the bike before the end of the day. Uh, we have paramedics at the scene for many of these kids just because we know they're pretty frequent. And they tell us stories of kids that just get right back on their bike and go back to race before the day is done. And in between there, I think it's really important that we emphasize properly fitting equipment for these kids. Again, helmet use along the way. Mayo Clinic offers medical education conferences at locations around the country and the globe. Learn from medical experts and network with colleagues at exciting destinations. Plan your next CME course by visiting ce.mayo.edu. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week. Thank you.